All right, we're back again with another episode. Today we are, um, our guest is Ryan Dusha from Melrose High School, state champion head coach. Uh, coach, thanks for joining us today. Hey, really appreciate it. I look forward to hearing these uh, all, uh, all week. I actually, you know, I kind of hit the refresh page every, all the time and say, Who, who's Brett got, got on this week? So it's, it's really cool to, um, uh, that you asked me to, to, to be on this. And um, it's a great thing you're doing for the state. Well, I appreciate that. And you mentioned beforehand when we were talking that you've listened to all of them. Um, I'm not going to check your internet history to prove that correct or not, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll really challenge your fandom if you want to listen to your own voice. Because I don't listen back to any of them because I don't like the sound of my own voice. So uh, I'm sure my wife can attest to that as well. I have an annoying voice. But uh, yeah, we'll see if you're, we'll, we'll really see your, how big of a fan you are if you want to listen to yourself. But as you know, uh, our first question, always your Wikipedia page. So coach, tell us where you're from, where you played, and then what led you, your coaching career to Melrose? Sure. So I'm a 97 uh, grad of St. Cloud Cathedral High School. Um, and then after that, I uh, played four years of basketball at St. John's, uh, playing for legendary coach Jim Smith, which was which was awesome. Uh, and, and then after uh, after St. John's, got a job at Melrose right away. And I was two years as the uh, ninth grade coach under uh, Daryl OJ, who was a Hall of Fame basketball coach and was a coach for 28 years uh, in Melrose. And then uh, after two years, uh, I got the head job and I've been the head coach now. I just finished my 17th year uh, as the head coach. And so, um, and then part of that time, Daryl OJ actually came back and was my assistant for about seven years. So that was kind of cool that a Hall of Fame coach was able to come back and help out. So, um, so yeah. So you played for Coach Smith at St. John's. What's one big thing you learned playing for him that you've uh, transferred to your coaching? biggest thing that I learned from coach Smith was just everyone is important and everything is important. And so he, it was just a very modest person and he cared about everybody and their families. And I think what that did is that just made people want to play for him and you wanted to not disappoint him. And so um, that was probably the biggest thing. And he, his strength was definitely just relating to people and how you doing and checking in. And even when I played for him, he was, old, I would say, you know, and, and he ended up coaching 50 years at St. John's. And so, um, but yet he still was a, you know, a thinker and a tweaker. Actually, one, one year, kind of funny story, talk about the last dance on here quite a bit, you know, and Tex Winter's influence. And so my, I think it was my junior, maybe my sophomore year at the beginning of the year, he says, we're running the triangle. And so we're running the triangle, we're doing all this stuff. And I just joked with him, I said, hey, coach, did you, did you rent a, a Tex Winter video this, this off season? And, you know, and he said, well, actually I played for Tex Winter at Marquette in the fifties. He's been running the stuff since the fifties. I was like, Oh, okay. That's, that's great. <laughs> you know, so uh, just, just the wealth of knowledge, but, um, but, but very much um, caring about every person. Uh, and, and I've tried to bring that to not only basketball, but my classroom as well as my everyday life. So, uh, you know, you've had a lot of success at Melrose. I want to go back to 2019, uh, the, a game that kind of blew up Twitter for, for a few hours, maybe a day or so, uh, your section final game against Albany. Um, just give a quick rundown of like, for those that aren't familiar about what the situation was, what happened, and then kind of explain how uh, the, the call and the change and, 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 and obviously that, you know, they got it right. Right. I'm sure the, the Melrose knows they got it right, but just kind of give a quick summary about that and just the emotion and, you know, how that maybe really challenged you as a coach in dealing with those waves of emotion that your kids faced. 
yeah, there, there was no template for something like that. So section final is a great game and, and us in Albany, if people aren't aware are about, you know, 10 miles apart and kids know each other, families know each other. It's a, it's a intense rivalry, but it's a, there's a very much mutual respect. And so um, we take the lead on a shot with about six seconds left to go up by one. Um, they dribble up after a timeout, they dribble up and then call another timeout. So there's about two seconds left on the side. Um, ball goes on the side, ball goes underneath, guy lays it up and, and it goes in. And I, I saw, I could tell that it was, that it was late, but that's just me, you know, it's so the, one of the ref, the refs kind of looked at each other and one ref calls it good. And so I, I'm kind of looking at one of the refs. I said, just, just talk to each other before you, before you get out of there, just talk to each other. And so one of the refs, they're running off the court and the lead ref says, I got it. We'll talk. Okay, so they're running off the court, and and that's I think so, a little bit of the controversy is you know when is a game over you know and I've talked to refs afterwards. I said it's not over until the lead official leaves the whole playing surface, not just the court, but gets into the hallway. And so they never went in the hallway. They went and talked, and then they came back and they eventually said that it was no good. So in the meantime, though, Albany's storming the court because they think it's good. They saw one of the refs call it good the lead official comes and says, I am a hundred percent certain that they did not get it, that he did not get it off. And, and of course it was verified that it was after the fact. And then, so then we celebrate and it was, I mean, it was such a euphoric moment because there was a little bit of chaos and, and, and I think part of the, I guess maybe part of the issue was, you know, we have so much respect for Albany and their coaches and their fans and their players that we felt for them and had empathy for what they were going through uh, and their range of emotions. And it was a very tough situation. Um, it, I, I think it took away a little bit from the celebration from our, from our standpoint. And, and we didn't really know how to handle it, but we just talked about trying to be very respectful. But on the other hand, they got the call right. And imagine if they would have counted it and then they saw the pictures that it was no good. Imagine how we would have felt. And so, um, yeah, that was uh, that was a kind of a crazy time, but it was, um, it, it's just one high school basketball. You just never know. You just, when you put yourself in the arena, you just never know what might happen. Did you have to take an alternative route home or did you avoid 94 well, or how'd I, that go about? Yeah, it was kind of like we were, and of course we're, our locker rooms are right next to each other. So we're celebrating. But when we get in the common area, we told them to just kind of be respectful until we get on the bus and their bus is right by our bus. And we all kind of walk out together and you know, it was, it was more somber. It's just wait until we, we go and thankfully getting through St. Cloud that uh, you don't exactly go next to each other the whole time. So, <laughs> you know, have a little bit of exhale not being next to them um you know and it, it was great it was just a it was just a tough ending and you know the, the refs got it right and i'm sure that you know they're humans and, and they looked at that and a teaching point and things they could have done better but it was uh yeah there's there's no template for how that works either 2015 you guys won the state championship uh you know i think the the first time since like the 70s i think there's a couple in, in my quick little research we're both social studies guys so i did a little research and i think it's what 70 and 74 something like that so talk about I think it was a 41 year deal um since your last state championship talk about what that was like i mean you guys were a five seed uh, i remember you guys had a big upset in the semifinal game that i was at uh, against the one the one seed uh, was that st Clair, Clair lutheran or prep yep st Clair lutheran yep. and uh just talk about what that experience was like winning the state championship and then what that was like for the community it was unbelievable. I mean, Melrose is a basketball community. I mean, there, there's no question about it. And I think the the golden era of the 70s and Mark Oberding and all of that stuff. So we won the state championship in 1974. 
and then hadn't been back since. And not only have we not been back since, we had been to the section final nine times. And so we were 0-9. And it was just kind of that monkey on your back, tie, off your back type thing. And, and so when we won the section final, it was pretty euphoric. And the, the community just went crazy. And 17 fan buses going to our first game. I know you had mentioned that when you guys go to the state tournament. And, and that small town feel is so great. But what it did for our guys is we were playing with house money. You know, we get to the first round of the state tournament. I don't want to say that it didn't matter if we would have won or not, but look, winning that section final just was so exhilarating um, that our, our guys were just kind of like, well, if we win, great. And then, and then we won the first game and then we got the second game and played in the one seed. And it's kind of like, well, hopefully we can win this and we're on TV and that's cool. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I guess we're in the state championship game. And it was funny because we had to play Caledonia in the championship. And so we, we, we played St. Croix, uh, St. Croix Lutheran first, and then we sent the kids back and had them watch it on TV. I'd watch Caledonia, right? Don't mess around, just focus in, get a scout. Well, Caledonia is up 19 to two in, in the state summit. So I called back to the assistants. I said, have them play video games, turn off the TVs, don't let them watch it. And they're like, are you, are you sure? I said, yeah, just, just let them play. Cause I, they looked so good. Caledonia looked so dominant that I didn't want our guys to get psyched out. So, I mean, you tell teenagers to go play video games. It didn't take them real long to, to do that. So they're playing video games. And then we beat Caledonia, who was probably better than us. Uh, but we just, we played great. And, and winning that state championship and coming home and they got the fire trucks and the police and the parade and we're in parades all summer and all those things. It was you know, I think Terry Tucker mentioned that, that everyone should win a state championship or everyone should go to the state tournament. And, you know, it's true, even though it's not reality because um, of how difficult it is to do that. But um, I tell you, it was, it was just something that, um, that everyone will remember. So you have a, a, a really successful program. You mentioned you've been to a lot of section finals. You've now had a couple uh, state tournament appearance, state championship. What are some ways that, and that doesn't just run because you're running a great, you know, varsity team. Like, at, a, at, a, at a community like Melrose, obviously you're going to be involved all the way down. So just talk about what your uh, K-12 program looks like in Melrose. Yeah, you know, I think, like you said, with, with it being a basketball town, you don't have to – force guys to play you know a lot of people it's kind of one of their favorite sports and some of those things and so you know sometimes I think it's it's not who you are it's it's where you are and you know and I think with, with a town like Melrose it's 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 just like a good fit I think our philosophy fits in with the community philosophy and so what we really try to do is is try to have some type of structure um and opportunities for our for our kids and our um in our youth levels. And, but yet on the other hand, I, I try not to micromanage and, and say, this is exactly how we do it. So, so basically our kind of the way that we do it is, is before the season, we do kind of a two week meet seven times K uh, one grades, one through six. And, and we're all there. And, and then, um, and then starting fourth grade is when we start our travel team. So after that, we kind of start a travel team in fourth grade, whoever wants to play, come and join. And then that kind of runs itself. And then our fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth are all travel teams. And, and my role is just kind of organization up front, letting the coaches know who the, uh, where the tournaments are, and then in, in encouraging them to play. And so in our district is very good. We have, we have gym space and they allow the teams to come in um, at night and, and play and some of those things. And so I think it's just, trying to get people those those opportunities and, and some of that. And then on top of that, I try to have pretty clear expectations about what we want out of our travel teams and what we want out of our um, junior high programs. And, and basically I just say there, there's only two things that I want and that's 
that they walk out of this experience and it, they had fun and it was positive and that they learned something about the game. Don't care about winning. Don't care about any of those things. Um, we just want it to be a positive experience and we want them to at least develop a little bit. And so, you know, there's a packet I give people and things, but it's really more of just trying to make it a, a, a safe environment and a good experience for, uh, for all of them. And, you know, as part of that, I, I try to also give our seventh and eighth grade coaches and then our ninth and B, B coaches, you know, specific things that they should have in by the end of the year. So it kind of builds on that. So by the time that they get to varsity, there's at least, we at least have some organization or structure of what they do. And then we, and then we tweak it. Um, we tweak it from there. I would also say that I, I think it's important with that to have, you know, uh, an expectation of parents about the involvement that they, that they're going to need to be involved, but yet when they get up to, to the varsity level that and the ninth and B squad level that, you know, they kind of let the coaches coach and the parents parent and the players play and the refs ref and all that. So I think just having kind of some of that structure and organization as we go. And um, I think that helps, but I really try to structure it, but not micromanage. One of the biggest things that I've taken away from doing this podcast, I know we talked about before we recorded, just, you know, how appreciative you were. You mentioned at the start and, you know, and I've mentioned on these before that it's kind of was for selfish reasons where I was sick of the high level content that wasn't really relatable to a, you know, a semi suburban rural type community like Princeton that we're at. And so um, I have always been, and I know a few of my youth coaches listen to this um, and, and I've always kind of been the one who was like, you know what, I want you guys running, you know, run motion, run this, you know, play all man and that, which I'm pretty still going to be pretty strict on the man thing. But one thing, you know, talking to Chris Fadness, I think it was like episode three and Austin, he doesn't really get in too involved with the youth coaches on what they run. Like he just wants them to enjoy it because those coaches might have a different skill set and he doesn't want them teaching their matchup zone or their press and they don't know it. And then it's actually more work when they get to high school, fixing right. how they did it wrong. So what, you know, can you go a little bit deeper into some of the other expectations you do have for those youth coaches? Cause I do think it's important that you mentioned that you're not, you know, telling them, run I know you guys run euro ball screen um but not you you have to run this or you have to run this so just what are some things what are some other things that you expect out of them you know you had talked about five out motion you know five out stuff and, and uh, i we haven't done that we haven't said that you have to run a specific offense they're usually kind of pick the brains of the people before you for that um you know i think one of the biggest things is, is to develop players and and so we try to really have them be positionless you know and not stick a kid at a post because he's five, nine and a mustache or something like that when he's in sixth grade, <laughs> you know, is really try to get people to understand, you know, the different skills of basketball. But I usually try to talk to our travel teams and our, and our, you know, my son is the, he's kind of that age now and I'm helping out with him so I can kind of bounce around with some of the other teams. But one of the things we also try to talk about is just trying to be a good teammate about, you know, what is, what does that mean? And that's, could be passing the ball it could be setting a screen but it's also understanding that people are at different levels uh and that somebody's better than you and you're better than somebody else and so to appreciate everyone's contribution to the team and so i i think all of that maybe more than the skill development and more than than the x and o development or anything is just we want you to play this year and we want you to play next year and, and that is is maybe more of the focus and i think that's a little more of a program is that i don't think our program is is one of those that it's wow they run this so well or they're just an x's and o's or they're you know look like they've been running this for 10 years it's i think it's much more about a you know people understanding their roles and and people contributing to the overall overall success of the team and i think I tr we try to instill that at even the, the youngest ages 
you look at a team like Purim with Dave Crest was on and they run their, they run the Euro ball screen. They looked like they, and they've ran it for 10 years cause they have. And I think of the success that you've had at the two way program in Melrose doing it a little bit differently. And I, there's definitely, and that's the big thing that I think coaches need to be aware of is like, there's, there's multiple ways to be successful. Just be, you know, do what you do and be, you know, trust what you want to do and then just be bought in with that. And like, again, you're, you're proof of that. Like you're admitting that you guys aren't, you don't look like the crispest offensive team, but you're, you're developing players and you're, you're building relationships is where I want to move the move on to the next part here is now we're, let's talk more about your nine through 12 program. I know you mentioned when we were texting that you, you do a good job of, you know, communication and building relationships with your guys. So just talk about some of those, um, some of the strategies or ways that you build those positive relationships uh, with your student athletes. Yeah, I think there's some practical things we do. The, the other part is just the, the, you know, I'm in the school and I, I teach every one of these kids in the classroom. So I teach every 10th grader. <clears throat> so I have them for 175 days. And so I'm able to be their teacher first. In fact, many of them on the court call me Mr. Dusha as opposed to coach just because that's what they're used to. So I, I think that helps. Our B-squad coach is in the uh, junior high. Our ninth grade coach is in the elementary. Uh, our varsity assistant is a community guy that's all over that everybody knows. And so I feel like we, we just have a lot more contact with our guys. Um, and, and so that's part of it. And that, I think in a small school, that is so important is that you see those kids and you see them in the hallway and you just touch base. And, you know, sometimes it's not the best, though, because you might have a tough situation with a kid on a Tuesday night in a game and then you're going to see him in the hallway or in my classroom the next day. And so it's um, but, but I'd rather have that than not see them at all. So, you know, that, that's that's one part. But the other part with the communication relationship is that, you know, we feel that basketball is an extension of the classroom that it's part of the educational system, that it's not just basketball, it's, it's part of that. So when you look at it in that whole context, I think it's, it's more than just what can this kid do for me in my program, it's more of what can I do for this person, you know, and what can we do for this person? And so, you know, some of the communication things that I think help us is, you know, we do pre individual preseason meetings with all our guys the week before practice, and we ask them what they, you know, where they see themselves on the roster and what they see as their role and what they need to work on. So, so that's something we do before the season. After the season, usually we do it before the summer. Like, what are you going to work on? What are your plans for the summer? So I think just touching base with every one of those kids is, in, I think, good. But probably the, the most practical thing that we do, um, which I think is simple that maybe not a lot of coaches do, is we meet with two of our players, about two of our players after every practice for about one to two minutes. And we just we talk, Hey, how you doing? How you playing? Where you at? Any questions? And, and I think what that does is that, that is a, is a guaranteed time for us to communicate. Cause so many times you hear coaches say, my door is always open. My door is always, well, I'll talk to you about playing time anytime, but it's not easy for a kid to walk into a coach's office to say, we need to talk. But when they know they're going to have guaranteed time, then they're, they're very willing to, to, to mention, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, kind of, you know, why am I not playing as much? And, and we can have those conversations. Um, and we do that nine through 12. And so throughout the course of the year, we meet with those players three to, you know, three to four times individually. And then they're only two to three minute meetings. And sometimes when we're lifting, we'll just talk to those players. And I, and I think that people want to know where they stand, even if they don't agree with it. And, and so we, we are very clear, you know, you're kind of behind these two guys, or you need to do these three things better or whatever the case might be. Because as coaches, I think we naturally gravitate towards people that maybe our personalities match or maybe even our better players. Um, and so everybody is important. And so I don't want to just talk to those people and all a player feels like they're kind of on the outside. And so I think those those communication 
things have really have really helped. I think they've they've offset some problems and some of those types of things. And you know, I, I also think that as I get older, I try to ask more questions. Um, you know, we, like kids that have bad body language or they're very emotional. In the past, maybe I would have said, "Don't do that. You got a better body language. Figure it out. Get out. Be, you know, all that stuff." And now I, I'm much more. Why why do you feel that way? How do you feel? What are the triggers? How can I help you? You know, and and so I think some of those relationship buildings where it's it's just we care about them and we we're it's not an act, we we do and we but we gotta show it, you know. It's it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to to show it. So I think some of those practical things, preseason, postseason meetings, but those in season meetings have helped. I'm going to get you, I'm going to make some quick follow-ups. You don't need to respond too much to these uh, just because this is something that as a professional growth for me and my staff, we're talking about trying to find better ways to communicate throughout the season, preseason, postseason with guys so that, you know, there's not the fear of the unknown or where they're staying in the program so they can actually, you know, they can know where they're at and decide, okay, this is a program that I want to be a part of, or if I, I, I want to be part of this, so I need to do X, Y, Z to improve or move up the depth chart or whatever. So real quick, um, parents involved in your pre and postseason meetings? They're not. Nope. So it's okay. Just so do you follow up with the parents at all from via email or no? No, we do not. So we have a parent meeting at the beginning of the year. Um, yep. And we, we actually have a, um, a document that we have parents sign that say that they will not discuss playing time or X's and O's with us. And that's nine through 12. And I've supported the administration uh, with that. And so now that I've done it for a while, people know that you, we are not going to talk about playing time ever with parents or X's and O's. We'll always talk about if there's other things going on or social emotional things or, or things, but you know, once you get into X's and O's, we're not going to do it, but we're always going to talk to the kids always hundred percent, you know, for that. So the parents are not involved in those uh, individual ones, but we have, when we have the parent meeting, we kind of go through those expectations of what, where we're at. Kid comes in and thinks that they're a starter, but you view them as maybe fringe JV, maybe bench guy for varsity. Uh, how do you go about uh, bridging that gap from where they think they're at to where you as a coaching staff see them? Yeah, you know, those are some of the tough ones, right? Because I think the top players are, are pretty obvious and the bottom players sometimes know where they're at. And so um, I, I try to be very honest and say that even if you think that you're there, we don't. And, and here's what we think you can do to get playing time. And so we try to really talk about what are your strengths and play to them. Don't try to do too much of the other things, just play to your strengths. If you're a good shooter, shoot well. If you're a good rebounder, rebound well. If you're a good defender, defend well. You better be, you know, I've heard somebody else say that it was great. Be, be great at what you're good at, you know, and some of those types of things. So we just try to, to say, this is where we see you. This is what you need to do to maybe move up. And cause we don't want to, you know, we don't want to BS anybody. We want to be very direct with that. And so if they feel that way and we don't, that's okay. But we're also the ones making the decision and not them. Eight years ago, seven years ago now, this would be my eighth year as head coach. So however, whatever that math, again, we're social guys. I don't need to figure the math out there. But uh, whenever I took over, I remember some coach it was. I don't remember who it was mentioned your name and how well or the clear the expectations are. You know, you're kind of someone that to reach out to if you ever had questions about dealing with parents. And I want to talk a little bit more because I think that's something where, you know, young coaches, you know, and, and, I, and I will admit I fell victim to this as well. I may not victim to this, but I've been guilty of this where when you come over, you take over a program, you want it, you try to get really close with parents. And if it's youth association or wh whatever the case may be, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, their kid, the rubber meets the road and their kid isn't where they want them to be. And I'll, 
they, it just doesn't work anymore. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And so talk more about, I want you to dive a little bit more into um, what goes on at your preseason meeting and, and more so like advice to a first year head coach on, you know, how to deal with the, I mean, parents want, at the end of the day, most parents are good and they want their kid to be successful and they're to support their parent, but just there's some that don't see things the same way coaches do. And so what would be some advice or ways when you're setting up that expectations for parents um, that you would give to any, any head coach, but especially someone who's just getting into it? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, one by nature, I'm a little bit more of an introvert. And so I think that helps me. I'm not a person that wants the limelight or is out there. So I, th I think that helps, but uh, I do think you're right when you say about clear expectations, what we try to do in, with us is make them understand we're not going to talk about playing time. So we're not going to sit down and talk about why is this person not playing and we're not going to talk about X's and O's. We make them sign that document. And so you know, with that, I think some parents are maybe a little upset because boy, they just want to say it. They just, they, they just, they just want to talk, but we're, we're just not going to talk about it. And so at our parent meeting, I, I very flatly say, if it's in the middle of the season and your son is not playing and you think he should, here's the reason. The reason is that we as coaches have determined somebody else gives us a better chance to win. It's not because of his last name. It's not because of his brothers or his parents or anything, any other, other conspiracy theories that anybody wants to make up. That's the reason. And if you don't believe that, that's okay. But that's what it is from us is that we're far enough along here. I don't care who the person is. I don't care what their background is. We're going to play who gives us the best chance to win, whether that's a freshman, a sophomore, if that's seniors. And so you can invent any reason that you want, but that's not the reason. And so, um, so I, I try to be clear with that. And I don't want to be mean or, or dismissive of them because we need parents and, and our community is so good. Our parents are so supportive and I've had very few incidents over the years. Uh, they have allowed us to coach. I'm not naive. Not everyone likes what we do, but I think they appreciate the honesty and they appreciate that this is the way it is. And, you know, we talk about those four roles in a game, right? A player, a ref, a coach, and a parent is that I'm not going to try to parent your kid. And I appreciate if you don't try to coach, you know, and, and don't try to ref, you know, we all try to ref a little bit, you know, and, and all that, that <laughs> players got to play, coach has got to coach, parent got to parent, all that type of stuff. And so um, I, I just try to be really clear with that and, and blunt maybe, but I, I want to be clear uh, about we're doing the best we can. And, and I also try to say that we put a lot of thought and time and effort into just saying who plays and how are we going to play? This isn't just, oh, we're going to play Johnny today just because. We're there every day, and, and we also don't look at how much time to put in the summer. So if someone did something all summer and somebody else didn't, well, if, if the person that didn't do anything all summer is still better, we're going to play that person. It, it's just kind of the way it goes. But everybody is important to, you know, to the overall success of the team. So it's, I just try to have clear expectations so they can see it from my angle, not necessarily that – that I have to convince them that I'm right, but just that you know where I'm coming from. So we got about, we're about 26 minutes in. You've been really good stuff. It's been a great conversation. I think this is a must listen for coaches when they're, you know, the program building stuff is so important, having clear expectations. So I want to do one more, uh, one more thing about kind of that holistic program based stuff. Then I want to dive into your offense and defense and uh, what your kind of, what your practices and offseason stuff looks like. Um, but roster formation, you mentioned that, you know, you guys don't cut and you've kind of been known for having a big roster. So in addressing maybe more than 18, more, more than 18 guys. So my, my one question I want from you on that and um, how, and I think coaches could learn from is how do you keep, especially the senior guys, right? You know, everyone, you know, people get in their senior year. It's like, well, it's my senior year. I got to get a shot. Well, just because you've played basketball now in your last year in Melrose or Princeton or wherever the, wherever the school you're at, 
doesn't guarantee you get a role on the team. So how do you deal with those kids while making them feel valuable and that they're important? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things is that we try to pre preach that your role is different from your value, is that your role might not be a guy that plays at all, but you bring a lot of value to the team. And so we don't cut. And I think what's one of the most proud things I am is that we constantly have between seven and 11 seniors every year, seven, 11 juniors, you know, maybe a sophomore mixed in there. And so we have over 18. And so when it gets to playoffs, we have to not dress some of the people that have been there the whole year. And so what we try to do, I think, is try to make it fun, try to make seniors important. You know, we just do dumb things like they, the seniors get to pick music and practice. You know, and so, so they have a little bit of ownership. They get to eat first if we ever go to eat. They get to design the warm-ups. You know, and, and so they, they feel a little bit of ownership with that. Um, and, and we try to have fun. You know, we do little dumb things about, we call it the Dutchman Olympics. We have different competitions that we do, like, you know, like wiffle ball and this and that. And, and we try to end, end each practice with a contest and give them a Gatorade or have a little competition or something. And so, you know, I, we try to we try to give them importance and show that how valuable they are, even if they are not um, playing. And, you know, I've, I've had some coaches tell me, you know, we try to cut seniors if they're not going to be in the rotation. We, we don't want them on. If we got five seniors, we just want those five, all five seniors are playing. And I found the exact opposite. Some of our best teams are when we've got four seniors on the bench that never play, but are, we had that this year, they, they didn't play, but they were jumping and up and at them. And, and that is a form of leadership. So we try to really, preach that we also have an analogy about a musical you know we have a musical at school you got main actors you got background actors and well who's going to get more stage time in a musical it's going to be the main actors but you're going to notice if somebody in the background is not doing their role and not doing their part everyone's got to fit into this whole uh the, the the whole performance so to speak and so um so for when we get to playoffs what we have done is every senior dresses so that's another one of your reward is that even if you are the 22nd player talent wise you are going to dress for the playoffs then any sophomore or younger that is in the rotation would play and then we just kind of go through the juniors so the juniors maybe would been there all year but maybe they don't get a playoff roster spot well they're guaranteed as a senior to get one and so that gives them a little bit of something to look forward to as well so i'm very proud of that and i think it can be done you mentioned that you're, you're not necessarily a team that's going to have the best X's and O's or look cleanest on the offensive end, but uh, you guys have had a lot of success. So, you know, you're obviously doing something right on offense and on defense. Let's start with offense because I'm more preferential to offense. So we'll start there. Talk about uh, your guys' offensive philosophy for those that aren't familiar and then some of your main teaching points uh, within that. Sure. So we do not have one offense that we run all the time every year. Uh, when I first started, I'm like, you know, that coach, we're going to run this and we're going to be so good at that and everyone's going to know it. And what I just realized is that, you know, obviously teams change. And so what we try to do is th this is kind of our philosophy. From seventh grade on up, we run Euro ball screen. So our seventh graders run it, eighth graders, ninth graders, 10th graders. Everybody knows how to run it. There's a structure there. There's a system. But then starting in ninth grade, we try to look two years ahead about what would be an offense that this team might run with the, with the years above them. And then we try to add that second offense in ninth grade. So by the time they're in varsity, they've run – you know, one offense for five or six years, and then a second offense possibly for three or four years. And so we try to build that structure uh, from there. And one year way back when I tried to run three offenses and it just, you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. And so we just try to stick to two. And for us, the philosophy comes down to two things. How many posts we got? And do we have zero? Do we have one good one or one not so good one? And, or do we have two? 
And so we're going to structure it based on how many post players that we have. And we have offenses for no posts and one, either a decent post or a really good post or two, you know? And so our state championship year, it was the type of team that, you know, our top score averaged 12 points a game. So we were very balanced. So we wanted the ball, you know, side, top side, move the ball around. And we, so we did Euro and we did, you know, Kansas high, low stuff. Um, other years we've done, we want to space it out. We maybe got four, four good perimeters and one good post. So we'll do some dribble drive stuff and some of those things this year. and Next year we're running chin because we have a, a talent, multi-talented six, five, six, six good in the middle that we want to play through. So he's a back to the basket. He's a shooter. He can drive. And so we want him to touch it as much as possible. So we, we try to really look ahead at those things. So that, that's one thing is just where are the posts at? Cause you know, you can play with zero posts. You can play with five guards, but you can't play with five posts, right? So, so you got to be able to, I think, look at that. And then the second thing is how, for us, is how involved is a point guard? You know, is your point guard uh, get us into stuff and, you know, just kind of a floor general type, or is he your guy that's got to have the ball a lot? Well, if he's a guy that's got to have a ball a lot, then you don't want him giving it up and not getting it back. And, and so some of that would be our transition and, and trying to keep the ball in the middle of the floor with our point guard versus <clears> – <throat> you just get us into stuff and just run the offense. And so th those two things kind of dictate what our offense is. And then the other thing would just be, what are you good at? You know, don't, don't try to do too much. Just try to keep it really, really simple with, if you're a shooter, well, then you, you probably should just be looking to where you can get shots and some of those things. Um, what about transition? Uh, so you talk about, you know, mixing different things up in the half court. Do you have a set transition? Do you have a set like pace you want to go run on misses, go slower on makes just what, what does it look like for you guys on in the transition side of it? Yeah, our, the, the pace that we play at changes uh, every year, basically. I mean, I, I would typically like to play fast, but a lot of that for us has to do with our depth that if we're not real deep and we got guys playing a lot of minutes where, you know, we don't go as much on, on makes. Um, but yeah, our, our, our secondary break is we got guys running lanes and they're not numbered. So it's really kind of the first guy that gets to the wing is kind of the, the right wing. First guy that gets to the left wing is kind of left wing. And then we'll just do the typical first post up the floor as the rim runner and uh, get into ball side. And then we, we try to, then we just call it trail trail with our, our big guy. And he's setting a, um, you know, a transition ball screen and we're playing off of that. And of course, if that, if that guy can pick and pop great, if he wants to pick and dive, um, we really try to play off of that. So I would say the last five years, what we've really tried to do, and it's, again, it's pretty simple, get our two best players in the middle of the floor, space to the corners, space a guy in the, maybe the dunker spot and, and you know, let those two guys play off of, uh, off of each other. So if it's a, you know, a pick and roll and that big guy rolls, we want the guy that is in the dunker spot. We want him to clear out, you know, and, and let, let him work in the middle of the floor. And, and so we really just try to, you know, play off of some of those guys um, with what we're doing. And then we have the po possibility this year and last year of our center bringing the ball up and then running the point guard as the Drake screen. So inverting that screen and be able to play off of that. And it's amazing. Um, you know, I know you run some of that open, open ball screen stuff, how much you can get of just coming downhill and kicking out for a three, you know, of just making two guys guard the ball and, and good things tend to happen. So uh, Mr. Minnesota basketball Twitter and John Carrier was, uh, and he put out a, um, a Jay Wright quote from the last couple of days that he said that they, you know, they want to shoot a quick three in transition. They can get it. And you're right. I think that we're, you know, 
coaches, I think, can get into trouble a little bit, right? And if there's coaches want to slow things down and, you know, be set heavy, like Joe Berger's had success that he done and running 35 sets. Um, and I kind of gave him a little smirk on Twitter today when he posted one yeah, of them and I asked about the other 34. A uh, little plug for my Twitter, my, my Twitter humor there that my wife doesn't find funny at all. But, um, you know, it, it's if you can get an open shot, too many coaches get stuck thinking, Oh, you know, that's, we can always get that shot, but you know, can you? Cause even I found like some of our, you know, every year that we've had, you know, we kind of went down, you know, the last three years, maybe in talent, but I think our execution has gone up in the, maybe the last two years in the sense that, you know, we, you know, when you have guys that maybe aren't as talented, um, you know, we had like four guys from our team that went to state two years ago, uh, they're playing college basketball this year. We only, you know, we have two kids, two seniors that are going to play college next year. So two still good teams, but we were able to, Hey, we're not as talented. So we even need to play even faster now, right? Cause we maybe don't have as good of passers or as good as ball handlers across the board one through eight than we did the year before. So, you know, that's why our points per game went up almost 10 points per game from one year to the next. Cause we're like, crap, we got to shoot a quick shot. Cause we, if we get an open three, let's fire that thing up with confidence. And I don't want you thinking, and I just want getting that shot up. So I think that's uh, I like that you mentioned that as well. Um, and transition D is sometimes not is under taught. And kids are not as good at getting back and playing out of a backpedal. And so I think, yeah, if you can take advantage of a poor transition D and getting a shot, I mean, we talk about discipline. Well, discipline isn't passing it 30 times and waiting for a layup, right? Discipline could be throwing it one pass and shooting a wide open three because that's the way, that's what we want you to do. So let's go to the defensive side of it. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, you're, you're a pack line guy, so I'm not, we're a switch aggressive half court team. So what I want you to do is sell me and I, I'm not going to, so my, my assistants listening, I'm not, we're not switching, but I want you to try to sell me and why pack line is the way to go. And we're mixing up. We've had other pack line coaches, you know, Josh Shortman, Buffalo is a good buddy of mine. We, I, I joke a lot about their defense philosophy and they've always beaten us whenever we played them. So good, you know, hats off to them, but I want you to sell me why pack line is the way to go. Well, first of all, if you can use your clout now as a podcast star and get block <laughs> pass, that would be great for a pack line. You know? <laughs> so, you know, we my first uh, probably six, seven years, we were on the line, up the line, deny. We never switched. We were getting through stuff. We were just having tough. And, you know, we went through a stretch where we had not as athletic guys. And, and so part of our philosophy always is how do we win in March? And how can we get our guys fresh in March? And how can we beat good teams in March? And so we switched to the pack line as a way to be able to, if we're not as good, not as talented, maybe not as long, not as quick, of getting in that pack line. So we, 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 we went to that as a way to just try to keep things in front of us, contest shots. We switched more out of it. Um, and, and, and part of it was I didn't like how we were playing the post before. So we just went to, you know, playing top side in the post well if you play top side in the post it's tough to force baseline you know and so then am I really going to force middle that was tough am I really going to force middle and, and so then yeah because that's where the help is and so on so we like that just from uh trying to just keep teams in front of you and now the tough thing is the ball's going to move the ball's going to zing and you've got to be able to, to to deal with that so it's not great when you're losing of course we have different things packages to up tempo you know, the other part that I really liked is, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys teach it, the help and recover, right? You know, you, you help and then you recover. Well, in pack line, your position is your help. Theoretically, there's no help. You, you, your help side is there. You should be active in the gap. You should be there. And so I like the fact that I didn't feel like we had to help and recover. We just had to talk about recovery. 
Um, and so it, it just seemed to be a little bit more of a, you know, I don't want to say passive, but a little bit more safe play. And, and I think that that has helped us throughout the years to, to be able to beat teams that maybe we weren't as good as, but we just tried to, we just tried to slow it down a little bit. And there's different variations of pack line. So I want to ask, are you guys in helps? Are you one foot or two foot in the lane and help? So we, we should be one foot. You know, we try to not be as far over because theoretically, you know, you're forced middle, you're not giving up baseline, you're funneling to that. So you're theoretically not as there. But we still talk about midline because I feel like sometimes when we, when we first started and say, well, just straddle that backside lane line, they really didn't even get there. So now we try to say get to the midline with if they don't quite get there, you know, that's okay. What about your closeouts? Are you guys aggressive on your closeouts? Are you are you pretty much you know the traditional pack of you know light closeout, hand up, give a lightly contested three, or are you guys pressuring the ball? You know we're trying to get on pressure the ball. We're double double uh, two hand high hand closeout. You know, and I've gone back and forth about should we do one hand, should we do two, but we're two hand. Um, you know, trying to really get out and contest the three, um, and, and then of course that's just scouting, right? If a guy's uh, uh, Corver, you know, we call him a Corver. Then you just got to run him off the line uh, for that. Um, but yeah, th that that is a difficult thing because, you know, I, I presented at the clinic uh, this year, and one of the questions I asked was, "Would you rather contain the ball with limited ball pressure or pressure the ball and give up penetration?" And I, I asked people to raise their hands, and it was fifty-fifty. You know, and, and so I would rather probably contain the ball, um, you know, than pressure it and give up penetration. How much of your scouting report, I mean, you mentioned the Corver type stuff. How much do you adjust your, your pack line based on the personnel? That's always the one thing that I've noticed from pack line teams is I do think it lends to allow you to mix things up a little bit more with your scouts. Like when we're switching, we're switching. We just know like this dude, we're not going to make our guys memorize all eight guys in their rotation on what they do. So we know we might give up on some, oh crap, that guy was a really good shooter. I should have gotten out more. But do you find that you're able to do a little bit more with your scouting reports since you switched to pack? Um, you know, yes and no. I think no matter what we played on defense, just by my very nature, I would keep the scouting reports extremely simple. I've seen other coaches' scouting reports and I'm amazed. I am just blown away because to, to me, that, that's great for the coach and maybe that's what they need. But it's not what I know, it's what they can learn. And so our guys are, are just, we try to just keep it as simple as possible. We play everyone either straight up, we play them as a Rondo, or play them as a Corver, you know? And so that's it, you know? Um, just know what you're doing on those guys. So sometimes so we go over the top of ball screens, but, you know, once in a while we say, let's just go underneath him. And it's kind of weird because we never practice it, but, you know, we'll go underneath that. So I, I, I think it's not so much of the uh, pack line as it is just, Let's just try to keep it as simple as possible with what we're doing. But you're right. It's everyone kind of needs to know if we're running out on this guy or if we're going underneath on this guy. Uh, last thing, uh, uh, philosophical wise, um, you mentioned that one thing that leads to your guys' success is, you know, what you ask out of your kids during the season and the off season. So give us a quick little overview on what your off season program looks like for you guys. And then what your practice structure is like during the season. Yeah, you know, I'm just a less is more guy, and I think people are surprised at how little we do in the offseason. And part of it is just our guys play two and three sports. They work on the farm. They work jobs. Um, and I'm very conscious about how much time I'm expecting out of them. Because I think some coaches say, it's basketball. We're doing basketball. And I think at bigger schools, that's fine. But I try to ask myself, if every other coach 
asks the same out of them as I do. Do the kids have enough time to be kids? And so we, we try not to do too much. So um, off season, you know, we don't do anything in the fall um, because they're playing football and, you know, cross country and whatever else. Um, they might do some open gyms, captain practice type things before. During the season, we just go, nothing's more than two hours. If that's film, if that's weight room, we really try to say nothing's more than two hours. We usually subtract 15 minutes a month, um, you know, and so November, maybe into December is two hours and it's 145, 130, 115 to one hour by the end. Um, and so we try to get them in and get them out as, as much as possible. Um, you know, we don't watch as much film as I would like because part of it is say, I'll watch the film. I'll tell you what we need and we'll just do that 15 minutes on the court. But it's also very powerful when we do go in the, and watch the film and we're going to take 20 minutes out of practice you know, to, to, to watch that. So that, that's part of it. Uh, in the summer, we only do anything in June. We do nothing in July. Um, and we do, we meet a couple times. We play a few tournaments. We don't do skills workouts, really. I work more with our seventh through 10th graders and we have a little league and things that we do there. So I focus my attention on those people, but we want them to lift. We want them to have fun. We want them to go to the lake. We want them to have jobs. Um, we want them to play other sports. And, and I think, you know, part of that, part of the reason that works is because people love basketball. So they're going to find different ways to be able to do it through AAU and other things. But I also, I'm, I've convinced myself that part of our reason we've been successful in March is our guys are fresh. You know, we, we give them a day off at the end of January, at the end of February, just a random day off. We just no practice tomorrow. We don't go on Saturdays. So I, maybe I'm just, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm just telling myself that that's why one of the successes, but I really think um, less is more. And, and, and so if coaches are out there and maybe trying to get over the hump, I would suggest, sounds weird, but maybe doing less, <laughs> you know, and everyone's got to fit into where you are. That's why I said, it's not who you are. It's where you are. I think that fits into our school's philosophy that boys basketball is not trying to dominate the gym time and dominate all their hours in the summer. They, they got a lot of things going on. No, I'm with you right there. We, uh, yeah, two hours is definitely our cap with anything. We even, you know, maybe more go to the 145, 150 side, even early in the year. Cause like you said, you know, with today's game, kids are playing. You know, you mentioned you're not doing summer stuff. I'm sure you got a half dozen kids at least that are playing on a Comets team or in an AAU team. Sure. So they're getting their work in. And so it's, are you really going to, what you, what you think you as a coach might gain in those extra 30 minutes on the court? Are, I always think there's an opportunity cost and the kids are burnt out. And, you know, we both live or kids are probably driving, or we both coach or kids are probably driving 15, 20 minutes home in some cases on the county roads. And do we really need to take them till it's, you know, six o'clock on a school night where they're driving back, haven't eaten. And yeah, I love it, man. I, I'm, I'm all about that. And I think that's great stuff. And I, I would say, I don't think it's your self-fulfilling prophecy. I think it's spot on that. That's gotta be one of the reasons why you guys are having success. Obviously you got a, a good program set up. You have a good community and you, you, you're, you and your staff obviously know what you're doing. Uh, real quick on hit on the same two scenarios uh, that I asked Joe for me dying to hear on Monday or on Monday's podcast. So up three, Eight seconds left. You're on defense. Are you following or are you going to let them play? 95% uh, of time we are not following. And, and the reason why, you know, I heard Joe say something about eight seconds is, you know, something like that. I just feel if, it, if it's above five, you know, you follow, they make two, you're only up one. They follow you right away and you, you miss the front end and you come down. Too many bad things can happen. Now, ideally, you'd follow at two or one, but then you're worried about them shooting a three and following that. So, I would say whatever it is, just practice it. But we are, unless a team is just like, we're just not letting this guy. We're not letting – they're hitting threes. Let's just follow right away. We'll just play it. We're a, we're a play it out. Just trust it. Switch everything. I, I got a funny story on that. Sorry, I know if we're going long. No, we're, we're fine. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're doing this scenario a couple years ago. Uh, 
It's very, very same scenario. I said, all right, we're just switching everything. Don't even go inside the three-point line. Just stay outside. Just, just stay outside the three-point line. Don't go. So one of our players is guarding a guy in the corner. The guy runs on the baseline to the other corner. And I, I watched the player. He didn't want to go inside the three, so he starts tiptoeing outside the three-point line. They swing the ball, uh, and I was like, what are you doing? He said, well, he told me not to go inside the three. I'm like, well, true. <laughs> but if your guy runs across the baseline, you can go with them, you know. <laughs> so it was kind of a, it was a great teaching. It was a great teaching moment for, for everybody uh, for that. But, no, we are uh, play it out, uh, make them hit a shot. Down one, 20 seconds left. You have the ball. How quick do you want to get your shot to give yourself a chance at offense, a rebound, or a fall and come back again for a three? Yeah, I think we would just play. We would just play. And if you get a shot within the first four seconds, you get a shot. And if it's a good shot, we'll take it. You know, and then if you miss it, you got the rebound if you, or uh, can play the foul game. I don't think, uh, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't hold it until seven or something like that. We would try to get something right away. Coach, I appreciate it. Anything else you want to share? No, I just, I just, again, thank you for doing this. This is awesome. Um, we really appreciate everything you're doing. Well, I appreciate you coming on here, taking time. I know you had a, a busy day with some uh, uh, youth baseball uh, you know, over in Stearns County, which I know is no joke for my, for my amateur baseball days. Baseball is a big deal over there. So uh, I appreciate you making time tonight, Coach, and uh, best of luck and stay safe, and uh, we'll see you soon. All right, thanks, Brett.